of God's Word with you this morning. We're back in Daniel chapter 7. Um, are you getting, you getting tired of hearing Daniel 7? No, I hope not because um, what I've got for us today is going to get us through verse 4. Um, and as I mentioned last week, we're going to be looking at Daniel 7 a bit differently than we uh, perhaps have over the last couple of weeks. The past two weeks, we took great lengths in looking at what is known as the traditional interpretation of Daniel 7, one that mirrors or retells or recapitulates the dream and meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's chapter 2 statue dream, uh, that of four consecutive Gentile world powers of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome that would exercise dominion over the world. And from Daniel's perspective, most significantly over Israel, his people, until God in his sovereign timing brings about the conditions of the end-time nations that will wage war against God and his saints. But will ultimately be that one world nation will be ultimately judged, destroyed, as we saw in Daniel 2, and completely destroyed forever. We saw that again in Daniel 7. Followed by an eternal kingdom that would be established, as we saw in Daniel 7, the Son of Man. So the rock of chapter 2 got personified into a personage there in chapter 7, Jesus Christ himself, which said kingdom, Christ's kingdom, uh, will endure forever and have no end. And as I mentioned then, I will say again now, and it's important to understand this, the traditional view of interpretation of Daniel 7, what we've gone over the last two weeks, um, is, without question, the more popular view within premillennial theology. And so I've stated that on more than one occasion, but I want to state that up front here again today. But, as I also said, it's not the only view. It's not the only way to make a faithful interpretation of Daniel chapter 7. And my wife said, after I finished preaching um, on that traditional view, she was like, are you sure you don't believe that view? You sure sounded like you did. And I said, well, I held that view for probably 25 years, so I know it very well. And as some of you may recall, when we were going through Romans chapter 7, that was the first book that we expounded on here at Jinx Bible Church when we started the, this church, you may recall then that when I went through there, I also made mention to you that I took a minority view on Romans chapter 7. And we expounded upon that. And if you've yet to hear that, I encourage you to go to the YouTube channel. You can go find the entire Roman series. Um, and yet, here again in Daniel chapter 7, it just happens to be chapters 7, I find myself now in life uh, preferring the minority view of Daniel chapter 7, which is referred to as the concurrent view or the contemporaneous view. Now, with that being said, I also need to say this. If I'm wrong, it's all right. But you need to know, if you're in the traditional view, if you're wrong, it's all right too. Because as I mentioned previously, having a view of Daniel 7 that doesn't recapitulate, just simply tell the exact same story of chapter 2, doesn't change the meaning of chapter 2 at all. I still hold tightly to the interpretation of Daniel chapter 2. And so if Daniel chapter 7 were just simply to retell that same story, the same information, I'm in agreement with it, right? So what I'm going to present today and start presenting today and in the next week on this contemporaneous view doesn't change any of the truths that we've previously heretofore looked at. So the view that I'm going to be giving you today is a different view. It's not a retelling of the same story. It's an expansion of that truth, of the truth of Daniel chapter 2. It's an expansion of that and so instead of seeing these beasts of Daniel chapter 7 as Medo-Persia, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, it's inst instead we see them as contemporary nations on the earth all at the same time. At the very end of the age, these four beasts being together. So that would be an expansive view of Daniel chapter 2. And so we refer to that as the contemporaneous view or the concurrent view. Either way, it's basically saying the same thing. So let's take a look at this. Let's look at Daniel, again, chapter 7, 
And let's start in verses 1 and 2. Well, I forgot to show you, by reminder, I was going to show you that. But you've seen this enough, right? So there's, there's the traditional view. Okay. Daniel 7, 1 through 2. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my, night, in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So again, here Daniel has a dream, and while he sleeps, he sees a vision in his mind, and as he lays on his bed, and the text says that he wrote down this dream and wrote a summary of it. And just as I showed you two weeks ago, the four winds of heaven is a figure of speech letting us know that what Daniel sees encompasses the entirety of the world. Daniel's vision and its impact will be consequential for the entire world. And as we saw last time, the great sea that's mentioned here is actually a figure of speech with reference to the peoples of the earth. And we went into great detail in, in describing and showing you that. So Daniel sees a massive worldwide stirring up of the peoples of the earth. And from that comes these four beasts, four nations. Keep looking at verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Daniel sees here that there are exactly how many beasts? Are you sure? How do we know? It's because it's what the text says. More on that in just a minute. Verse 4. So I keep that in mind. Four beasts different from one another. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Verse 5, and behold another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth and thus they said to it. Arise, devour much meat. Verse 6, after this I kept looking and behold another one, like a leopard, which has on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Verse 7, after this I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, <clears throat> came up among them. <clears throat> and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and had a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, before we get more detailed, let me show you a very simple chart that will visualize for us what the contemporaneous view <coughs> sees and believes that Daniel is seeing here in his vision. And I don't know if this is the very... It's not a very, um, well, it's somewhat artistic. But as you see here, you have a lion with wings. That was the first one. You got a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, so that represents that. You've got the leopard with the four heads and the wings, so there's the third beast. And then you've got the fourth beast, which in its description um, is is given no animalistic descriptions to it. It's not described as or likened unto any kind of uh, animal, whether it's the lion, the bear, the leopard. This could have been the alligator, I guess. But the fourth beast was given no animalistic description. And it's important to understand that what Daniel sees in his vision of these four beasts are later described in Daniel 7, verse 17, uh, as being four kings, each one the ruler of a world power. Verse 17 says, These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. 
<coughs> it's also, <coughs> excuse me, it's also important to understand the when. When does Daniel see these beasts, these kingdoms? When are these four kingdoms contemporaneously on the earth all at the same time? Well, as we saw in the description of the fourth beast, this one here, when Daniel was given the description of the fourth beast, he said that it was different from all the rest of the beasts that were before it. There is in Daniel's vision a discernible difference in this fourth beast. Uh, you will recall perhaps from verse 7 that this beast had ten horns. Now it's kind of hard to see in this little rendition or in this little drawing here, but that beast was described as having ten horns. And it's critically important to note here, and so if you're a note taker, you're going to want to make certain that you really get this point right here. That this is the point in Daniel's vision. This is the intersection or the convergence that we have with Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This fourth beast with the ten horns. The, the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's dream were described in chapter 2 verse 44. Back in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 as being kings. And in the days of those kings. It makes reference to the toes as being kings. In the days of those kings. And it's critically important to understand. And to distinguish here that the ten toes of Daniel 2. Those kings represented historically. And again get this. They represented historically. In the days of those kings. Daniel 2.44. Those kings represented historically a different world power than was Rome. And so when we went through chapter 2 of Daniel, I made specific mention to that as being a fifth kingdom. We perhaps refer to it as a, a revived Roman kingdom or a revived European League of Nations. But it is distinctly different than the Roman Empire distinctly different, thus making there a fifth kingdom according to Daniel 2, one that we would still be looking for and waiting on. And it's this fifth kingdom of Daniel chapter 2 that ultimately gets smashed, we see, by the rock that was cut without hands, which ushered in a heavenly kingdom that is said to stand forever. So again, make a note, it's it's this fifth kingdom of Daniel 2. Ten kings, ten prominent world leaders that here in Daniel 7 is seen by Daniel in much greater detail. That is this fourth beast of verse 7 being described now not as toes but as horns. Ten horns, ten prominent world leaders, heads of nation states. And it's the convergence here that we must clearly see in order to properly understand this contemporaneous view of Daniel chapter 7. To understand that what Daniel sees here is an expansion of what God revealed in Daniel 2. Not a retelling of what Daniel already knew and understood from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. God wasn't just reaffirming for him the same thing that he already knew. Instead, it's a revelation from God that expands Daniel's understanding of these end-time world powers. Which helps give understanding, if you think about it, to Daniel 7, verse 28. When you get to the very end of, of the chapter, 7, 28, it says, At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. What Daniel now sees is significantly more detailed and thus alarming than anything revealed from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel now sees the great persecution of the Antichrist against the saints of God prior to the coming of that heavenly kingdom, and he's stunned by what he sees. So when Daniel sees the little horn of verse 8 that came up among the ten horns of verse 7 and supplanted three of them, 
he sees in his vision the rise of the Antichrist at the very end of his career, of his campaign of world dominance. So in this chart here, we have the four beasts that Daniel sees. This takes us, if you will, through verse 7. But when you get to verse 8, there became a little horn that arose amongst the ten horns and overpowered three of those horns. And that beast becomes consolidated into a world power under the leadership of that little horn, which is the end times antichrist that we're going to see very clearly later in the text of Daniel chapter 7. So perhaps you recall that from our earlier walk through chapter 7 when looking at the traditional view, but it's without question that that little horn becomes the end times antichrist. And eventually over time he successfully conquers and subdues these other world powers through the conquest of war. And we have the conquest of his wars detailed for us briefly in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 45. Whereby he will effectively rule the entire world in a new amalgamated beast. As seen by the apostle John in Revelation 13. So in answering the question of when. When will these four beasts be seen together on the earth at the same time? It's just prior to the beginning of the Antichrist taking his rule by force. It seems that this is what Daniel sees in his vision of chapter 7. Which again is where Revelation 13 comes to play. Let me just show you a couple of verses quickly in Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, we're going to see there's a New one world, truly united nations of a beast that emerges on the scene out of the, out of the seas, out of the sea of humanity. And it's under the authority of this beast, this little horn, this most dominating and feared world leader that Daniel sees and describes in Daniel 7, 8. In Revelation 13, look at just verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Starting to notice some similarities. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. This arguably is the most detailed vision of the one day destined one world power. Or we might refer to it as a united nations under the leadership of the Antichrist. The one world power of this coming beast and so this chart here kind of shows the progression number one you see what Daniel sees all the way through verse seven four beasts the number two here is when it's an indication of the little horn that comes up amongst that fourth beast that was somewhat different Daniel says and that little horn rose and overpowered three of those horns and then through the wars of Daniel 11, we see that this little horn, this Antichrist, overpowers the rest of these world powers that are, on the, that are on the world scene at this time. And then here in number 3, in Revelation 13, you see the amalgamation of these world powers being consumed into one world governing authority under the leadership of the Antichrist. Listen to Chris White from his commentary here on Daniel. He says, this is an unambiguous reference to Daniel chapter 7. The fact that we have 
this is his commentary regarding the, the, his, the connection with Revelation 13. The fact that we have a lion, a bear, and a leopard in the same place, all in context of the Antichrist, is enough to cause us to pay very close attention. But when you see that it has seven heads and ten horns, a direct correlation to Daniel 7, the possibility of this being a coincidental similarity is not a reasonable option. If you take the beast in Daniel 7, that is a lion with wings, a bear, a four-headed leopard, and a ten-horned beast, and you combine them all into one beast, you would have a seven-headed, ten-horned beast with characteristics of a bear, a leopard, and a lion, exactly what we see in Revelation 13. In other words, the beast of Revelation 13 that comes up out of the sea is the Antichrist, the end-time one-world leader, now done with his conquest of the other three world powers and is the uncontested ruler of the world. So here's a different way, a different chart that's trying to explain a very similar concept and idea for us. Again, the four beasts that Daniel sees in his vision of Daniel 7, it's already marked with the red quadrant there indicating that this is the one that had the ten horns the little horn verse eight came up amongst overpowered the three and this is he's got this referred to as the antichrist's early career the beginning of the rise of the one world leader we're going to get there we're not there in daniel 11 just yet we might get there in two years from now at the rate that your pastor is moving in daniel 7 you see the wars of the Antichrist, where there is the overpowering and the overtaking of these other three world entities. And then you see that brought together all of the images of the beast that Daniel see, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. You count up the four heads here, that's four, that's five, six, seven. So you get the seven heads, you got the ten horns, you get the, the lion, the bear, the, you got all of... It all comes together, and here you see, coming out of the sea, this one world power that the Antichrist has been able to accomplish, which is referred to the latter career of this Antichrist, this one world leader. And it's relevant to know that in Revelation 13, that most consecutive premillennial theologians are understanding Revelation 13 to be the Antichrist's final three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Not the first three and a half, but the final three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. So when you get to Revelation 13 and you see the, the things that are happening there and in other places, it's under the authority of this one world power and that of the Antichrist, the end time beast. By the way, how many of you recently saw the newly unveiled United Nations statue just last year, December 2021, that they just unveiled there at the UN headquarters in New York? Anybody see that recently? Well, if you haven't, I brought it for you. Check this out. Look familiar? Just unveiled, December 2021. Your tax dollars at use. Mirroring the very beast that you see in Revelation 13. Not to a T. You might say, well, it's missing this. But the majority of what you see in Revelation 13. Has been unveiled as a positive thing. As a positive thing for world unity. And solidarity. Is the way they are portraying this seems to me that they may be just falling right into the sovereign hand of God and doing his bidding without even knowing it what do you think now in saying this I know not the time or the hour I'm not claiming to be a prophet nor the son of a prophet I don't know 
I'm just one who makes observations. And I see what I see. And then I see the scriptures. And I just say, come soon, Lord Jesus. The sooner the better. Now, some of you young guys, I remember when I was young and I wasn't driving yet, and I'd hear the preacher say that. I was like, man, Lord, could you just wait a little bit longer? I'd like to drive first. All right, anybody else? <laughs> I remember having, yeah, you say it's the same thing. So some of you young guys are going, I'd like to drive a car first, you know. Uh, it'd be nice to, you know, but um, one of the things that we see changing uh, as the years have passed by is the fulfillment of things within the book of Revelation that are mentioned that, that couldn't have been prevalent during the World War, Second World War, perhaps when a lot of people thought, well, maybe this is the time there's this cataclysmic disturbance going on worldwide. But when you look in the book of Revelation, and we're not there, so I'm not going to jump into it, you see that it says there's going to be an explosion of knowledge. And if you haven't noticed the explosion of knowledge from the time of the Second World War until today, then you just you grew up in it, and you perhaps don't understand. But today, every single one of us are walking around perhaps with a handheld computer that connects us to every single part of the world that has the internet, which seems to be one of the tools used probably most by the adversary to steal, kill, and destroy life from people right here in the palm of your hand and in your hip pocket. So we see things like this, an explosion of knowledge and such things, and here we have the unveiling of this grotesque-looking creature as described in Revelation 13. Now, I would say let's just kind of let all this sink in a little bit if possible, you know, the old Selah, let that sink in in but that's a lot to sink in in such a short period of time so we do need to keep moving forward because I told you I was going to get through verse 4 today right and you're like well pastor you already hit verse 8 well I'm taking you backwards we're going to go back and look at some of the detail now of these individual beasts and in getting through verse 4 today that's all the time I'm going to have and so we're going to look at the individual beasts of verse 4 and make some observations. And then when we make some observations, we will make some interpretations along the way. Look at verse 4 again. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Now, I'm sure most of you recall from the past two weeks looking at the traditional view that this first beast was to represent Nebuchadnezzar and thus Babylon, as I taught it so eloquently. And the obvious connection with this view is that Nebuchadnezzar was changed into an animal-like creature and was actually then restored back to thinking and giving a, given a human mind back to him, which is similar perhaps to what we see here in verse 4. Well, the objection to this from the contemporaneous view would ask this question, is this what we see in the text? Is this what we see in the text? Let's take a look. I'm going to show you as quickly as I can three distinct passages from Daniel chapter 4 that describe what happened to Nebuchadnezzar for the purpose of seeing if it's what we see here in Daniel chapter 7 verse 4. So in verse 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, this is a portion out of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he's relating the dream. And when Nebuchadnezzar is speaking this, Nebuchadnezzar is sounding forth on what he saw in his dream. And this is just a snippet of it, but you're going to see why I'm just choosing to look at these little parts. So bear with me. Look at verse 15. He said, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast 
in the grass of the earth. Verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So let's ask, what did Nebuchadnezzar see in his dream? What does the text say? It says that he saw that that the individual that he's making reference to was a man, and that he was drenched with the dew of heaven, that he was to share with beast in the grass, uh, had, had his mind changed from that of a man, and that a beast's mind was given to him. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw that happened to him. He didn't know it was him just yet. And so this next portion is of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is Daniel's interpretation from verses 23 through 26 of that section. So Daniel says, In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven... Starting to see some of the connections. Drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. That you be driven away from mankind. So he's going to kind of reiterate himself here. And your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 26. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with its roots, with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So again, what Daniel here we see in his interpretation is that this individual is drenched with the dew of heaven. It says, let him share with the beast of the field. He's to, his dwelling place would be with the beast of the field. He was going to eat grass like cattle and again be drenched with dew of heaven. That's what Daniel gives in his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then this last section is the fulfillment of said dream. From verses 31 through 33. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over to you, over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, verse 33, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagles, feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. So here in the fulfillment of it, we see the dwelling place with beast of the field, grass to eat like cattle, began eating grass like cattle, body was drenched with the dew of heaven, his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, not wings, feathers, his nails like birds, claws. And by the way, claws is inserted, it's not in the actual text, neither is the word feathers, those were inserted for clarity's sake, perhaps. We see... A very consistent list three times of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. So keep that in mind. Now, let's reread Daniel 7-4 again and see if this looks similar or not to what we just saw happen to Nebuchadnezzar. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. So the things that we see here in verse 4 is that this beast is like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. 
we see here that these wings were plucked off of this lion-looking beast. We see it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. So Daniel now sees a lion-looking beast that is now without wings and is instead now standing on two feet the way a man would stand on two feet and not four the way a lion would stand. And it says of this beast that a human mind was given to this lion standing on two feet like a man. Does that sound anything like we saw that actually happened to Daniel in chapter 4? Well, according to the hermeneutical principle of observation, I for one became forced to say not at all. That I don't see any resemblance at all between the first beast of Daniel 7 and the description of what happened to Daniel in chapter 4. Now, according, again, to the traditional view, one of the ways to make the supposed connection of the beast in chapter 7 stronger is to say that the winged lions were considered national symbols for Babylon and that the winged lions were discovered there in Babylon in various places, none being more famous than those discovered on what's called the Ishtar Gate of Babylon, which, by the way, was constructed by King Nebuchadnezzar, and this famous Ishtar Gate of Babylon was the main entrance into the city. So it was a big gate. It was a big deal, a big to-do. So magnificent was this gate that it was made, that originally it made the initial list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's how amazingly large and beautiful said gate was. It was later replaced off that list by the Lat House of Alexandria, but that's for other people to determine what's truly the great wonders of the ancient world, not mine. However, winged lions on that gate of Ishtar in no way would suggest that winged lions were indeed a symbol of Babylon. As a matter of fact, on that famous Ishtar gate, there were other winged animals as well. Winged bulls, winged dragons... And somebody actually took the time to count them. Imagine that. And in that count of the Ishtar Gate, there was a total of 120 lions, some of them of which were winged, some of which were not. But there was a total of 575 dragons and or bulls on said Ishtar Gate, some winged and some not. And on this Ishtar gate is nothing less than a dedication plaque written from Nebuchadnezzar himself where he himself explained the gate's purpose in some detail. Now, if you're interested, this entire dedication, uh, this dedication plaque that's on the Ishtar gate can be Googled and you can see it and you can read what's on it there uh, in totality. But let me quote for you just a portion uh, with reference to the animals on the gate and what Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote concerning the animals on the gate of Ishtar. He said, I place wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorn them with luxurious splendor so that people might gaze on them in wonder. Interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mention lions or winged lions at all, not one time. So if winged lions were indeed a national symbol to be understood for the usage of a winged lion in Daniel chapter 7, it sure seems like the gate of Ishtar perhaps would have been a great place to, to show such national pride through national symbolism. As a matter of interest, the gate was named, obviously, as you've noticed, after the goddess Ishtar, who by some traditions was considered to be married to Marduk, who was without question the main or chief god of Babylon, thus making Ishtar one of the queens of Babylon, and that through marriage with perhaps Marduk. Again, that's in just some Babylonian tradition. And it was Ishtar who was so often depicted in sculptures and relics as being the one who was the lover of lions. Listen to this quote from the World History Encyclopedia. 
It says the Ishtar Gate is named so because it was dedicated to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. Although Nebuchadnezzar pays homage to other Babylonian deities through various animal representations, the animals represented on the gate are young bulls, lions, and dragons. These animals are symbolic representations of certain deities. Lions are often associated with Ishtar, bulls with Adad, and dragons with Marduk. Respectively, Ishtar was a goddess of fertility, love, and war. Adad was a weather god, and Marduk was the chief or national god of Babylon. If any animal would have been represented, perhaps, as a national symbol for Babylon, clearly it seems that it would have been dragons. After the chief or national god of Babylon, instead of lions. It was also written, and I don't have that one for you, so I'm going back there. It was also written in the Epic of Gilgamesh of Ishtar. It says of Ishtar in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Thou hast loved the lion, mighty in strength. Again, it's for this reason that many believe that the appearance of the lions, winged or not, such as on the Ishtar Gate in Babylon and in other places located throughout Babylon, had nothing to do with the lion being a symbol of Babylonian nationality, but because of Ishtar's association with Babylon's chief god, Marduk. So again, trying to suppose national symbolism as a means of connecting the beast of Daniel 7 verse 4 and equating that to Nebuchadnezzar and thus the Babylonian kingdom, when one takes a peer and peek into history, it just doesn't fit. Doing this also, if you think about it, brings up the problem of the next two beasts. They also look like what? They also look like and are described by specific animals. Neither of which has ha ever had any type of national symbolism try to be attached to their animal likenesses. Medo-Persia has never been bear-like, nor did it have bear inscriptions on its famous gates or palace doors, nor does any conservative commentary ever try to make a bear-like connectivity with the Medes and the Persians. And Greece and or Alexander the Great don't have any historical connection or national symbolism with the leopard. So doing this with Nebuchadnezzar creates unique interpretive problems with regard to hermeneutical consistency across the same context within Daniel chapter 7. So if we're going to make the lion a somehow a national symbolism of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, hermeneutically, contextually, it would seem to make sense than the other beasts that have animalistic features would have similar connections and they don't so what I'm showing you is that the content of chapter 4 doesn't match the content of chapter 7 and that the somewhat forced use of the lion as a national symbol simply doesn't work it just doesn't fit. So again, when we ask ourselves, what do the scriptures say with regard to Daniel 7? What do we see? We, like the Bereans, we go back and what do we do? We look at the scriptures. And we ask ourselves, what do we see? The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. What do we see? This beast is like a lion that had the wings of an eagle. That's what we see. These wings were plucked off of this lion-looking beast. 
It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. So Daniel now sees a lion-looking beast that is now without wings and instead is standing on two feet the way a man would stand on two feet. We see that a human mind was given to this lion standing on two feet like a man. That's what Daniel sees in his vision. That's what the text says. Now, how might we go about understanding what we see? That becomes the interpretive issue, right? Well, the fact that this nation is like a lion and has wings like an eagle would seem to simply imply that this nation is both strong and swift. Like a lion and an eagle in flight. Its wings being plucked off in my estimation is it's not a good thing. A once powerful and swift nation seems to get grounded. This is a bad thing, not something good for this nation. The fact that this lion-like beast was taken off all four feet of a lion and made to stand on two feet like a man, again, seems like a major disadvantage for this once powerfully swift nation. Let me, let me just ask you, if you could have cat-like reflexes, reflexes or human-like reflexes, which would you choose? Which are better? The cat, all day long. This lion-like beast in Daniel's vision has been severely tamed in Daniel's vision, weakened in both power, agility, and the fact that a human mind was given to it again, major downgrade. Also, this word here for mind is better translated heart. A human heart was given to this beast. As a matter of fact, the word in the Aramaic here is the word for, guess what? Heart. And when the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, we call that the Septuagint, the LXX. The Greek word translated here for the word heart there in Daniel 7, 4 from the Aramaic into the Greek, it's the word cardia, which is the word heart. A human heart has replaced the heart of a once fearless lion. A significant downgrade with regard to national courage, pride, and fearlessness indeed. That's what Daniel sees. A once powerful and swift nation denigrated into something significantly less powerful and swift right before his eyes. Which is descriptive of one of the nations that will ultimately be overpowered by the Antichrist and integrated into his one world united nations. Is it sinking in a little bit? I hope so. It's a lot to absorb. So what have we seen briefly this morning through verse 4 of Daniel 7 with regard to the contemporaneous view? In chart 1 here, we saw the four beasts that Daniel described, which took us through verse 7. And then in verse 8, chart number 2, we see uh, this beast here that had the ten horns over here in verse 2. It's Highlighted significantly like this, as you can tell, because it transitions into a one-world governing power. Because the little horn that springs up amongst the ten horns and overpowers the three, uproots the three, is the coming in-world leader of the Antichrist. So far, we've only covered the beast, the first beast of seven four. We're going to get to the bear and we're going to get to the the leopard next, and give a description on these as well and how they fit very naturally into a contemporaneous view, nothing forced on them whatsoever. And then we saw that transition briefly when we took a peek over into Revelation 13 and showed up out of the sea came this one algamated beast that looks similar to each of these four brought together as one. 
And so again, the concurrent or the contemporaneous view of Daniel 7 believes that Daniel is given extra revelation that is to be added to the end of Daniel chapter 2. And as we saw earlier in verse 28, when Daniel saw this revelation, he was mortified. He had to allow time to let this sink in himself. Now, you've got to remember, Daniel didn't have the privilege of this. Because of progressive revelation, we get to take sneak pictures, uh, peeks ahead, and we get to look into revelation and see what John saw concerning this exact same beast right here, the little horn that Daniel describes in Daniel 7, verse 8. So next week, I'm going to pick up in verse 5, and we're going to start off with the second beast. It's going to go a little faster next week. Somebody's not believing me. It's going to go a little faster next week, and we are going to get through the end. I think laying some of the groundwork for, the, for what necessitated my pilgrimage from a traditional view to a contemporaneous view was important and needed. But as I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon... If you hold the traditional view, I love you as a brother or sister in Christ dearly, and I would, we should never, ever split over any of this. And if you get convinced that perhaps this may be a more faithful way to examine this, this, the text, and you, and you migrate over to the minority view, which is the contemporaneous view, uh, the grass is still green on both sides. It's a faithful interpretation of the scriptures. We're all peering into the word of God trying to see the revelation that he left his prophets that could then be profitable for us, who perhaps we might be that generation that lives through and sees some of these end-time nations emerge as we've been discussing, as we've been going through Daniel 7. Come back next week, we're going to finish that view and then transition from there into chapter 8, the good Lord willing. And I believe he is. Let's pray.